Hi, I'm Dave Westberg, and you're listening to Billboard Insider Podcast, where I interview industry leaders about trends impacting the U.S. out-of-home advertising business. This podcast is sponsored by Billboard Insider's Guide to Leases, Easements, and Real Estate. Today's podcast guests are Allison Baker, a partner at the Venable Law Firm, and Ken Klein, Executive Vice President of Government Affairs at the Out-of-Home Advertising Association of America. Alice and Ken were presenters on an OAAA webinar on the Payroll Protection Program. Today, they're going to talk about recent developments in the Payroll Protection Program. Allison and Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Allison, can you give our listeners a, a short overview of what the Paycheck Protection Program is? Absolutely. So the Paycheck Protection Program is Title I of the CARES Act that was signed into law by the president on March 27th. And what the PPP, as it's been called, essentially does is it says to any business that has 500 or fewer employees, and there's a couple of other exceptions to that, that you are eligible to apply for a loan that is equal to two and a half times your average monthly payroll expenses for the preceding 12 months or for the year of 2019. And there's, you know, certain ways to calculate what payroll is. And that loan, in turn, can be converted into what becomes a functional grant, all or some of it, provided that you use those loan proceeds to recoup during the first eight weeks that you have the loan to recoup, make payroll payments and or recoup any payroll losses, meaning that you rehire people you laid off during the pandemic. You can also use no more than 25% of those loan proceeds on rent, mortgage interest, and utility payments. And so the idea is to incentivize companies to either maintain payroll and or rehire individuals who may have been laid off as a result of the pandemic or to re-up people's salaries. So to the extent people's salaries drop by more than 25%, this also incentivizes companies to make up that difference. The program has been very popular. As everybody knows, it was the subject of $650 billion wow. in two separate tranches of money that have been provided. It's actually, I think, $659 billion in two separate tranches of money that have been provided by Congress. That first tranche, which was $349 billion, was almost entirely used up in the first week or so that the loan was made available. Wow. Yes, it is a wow. <laughs> Companies that have taken this money, borrowers that have taken this money, and I should note that it's not just businesses, but it can be sole proprietors or independent contractors who are also eligible. Those loans are made through banks with which those borrowers have pre-existing relationships. And the banks, in turn, are making these loans. They're guaranteed by the SBA, the Small Business Administration, which is the agency administering this whole program. And they're backstopped by the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve has set up a credit facility that allows for banks to borrow money to fund these loans, which are, in turn, going to be ultimately guaranteed by the government. And so the, the banks are really on the front lines here making the loans to borrowers. And the program, as I said, has been very popular it's also been the source of some controversy. It's also been the source of a lot of media reports. And candidly, it's been the source of some confusion as well, which we're hoping to dispel some of that today on this podcast. Perfect. So the first tranche, if you will, of, of money that went in the program, you mentioned was exhausted very fast. Can I still apply if I am a small out-of-home company? Can I still apply for the program? Yes. So there was a subsequent tranche of money allocated by Congress a few weeks ago. 
My understanding is a little more, and this is a number I heard last evening, a little more than half of that money has been allocated in loans. And so we understand that there's still money available from this second tranche, but we would encourage people if they're interested to apply quickly. Some of the operative timelines are June 30th is really the date by which the forgiveness component is kind of the end date for calculating it. So obviously, you know, the sooner you apply, the better. And in addition, there's, you know, there's some reason to think that the money will will go more quickly, you know, this week and probably next week, especially as economic numbers keep coming out and forecasts aren't great. So I've applied, I've received a loan. What do I have to do to make sure the loan converts to a grant or converts to forgiveness? That's a great question. And that's the question that I think is, is really animating a lot of the interest in this program. So, you know, first of all, the Small Business Administration and Department of Treasury who are administering this loan haven't issued regulations that completely spell out exactly how the forgiveness program is going to work. But here's our understanding. The first eight weeks that you have the loan is the operative time period. So that's the first part. The second part is the loan proceeds during those first eight weeks have to, at least 75% of those proceeds have to be used for payroll. The third part is that no more than 25% of those loan proceeds can be used for rent, mortgage interest, and utilities, provided the, that rent, utilities, and mortgage interest obligations predate February 15th of this year. The fourth issue is, well, what if I have fewer employees now than I had in the past? What happens? And so the way this works is the program looks at the number of average monthly full-time employees that a borrower has during the first eight weeks of the program, so the operative time period and compares that average monthly FTE number against one of two time periods. And those time periods can be chosen by the borrower. So either the number of average monthly FTEs that the company, the business, the borrower had between February 15th and June 30th of 2019, or the average number of monthly FTEs that the borrower had between January 1 and February 29th of 2020. And obviously, the, the goal is to choose the time period for the, the borrower has the choice of choosing which time period is the comparison. You would choose the one that has the number of employees closest to the number that you have right now during the first eight weeks of the loan. Let's say, for example, that you had 10 people working for you the first two months of this year, and now you have five people working for you during the first eight weeks of the loan. And the reason you have that five-person delta is because you laid off five people as a result of the pandemic and you made that decision to lay those folks off between February 15th and April 26th of this year. If that happened, you could rehire those five people by June 30th and they would be counted and it would be as if you had no gap between last hmm. earlier this year and this current period. If there is a gap in the number of employees, so you have fewer employees now, than you had during one of those operative time periods, so last year or early this year, that gap is an amount by which your loan forgiveness amount gets reduced. In addition, so the fifth point is, let's say you have the same number of employees, but you pay some of those employees less. If you reduce employees' salaries by more than 25%, that also can count against you for purposes of forgiveness computation. And now the point in time that you're measuring against is whether or not that salary difference is 25% or less 
as compared against the first quarter of this year. Mm -hmm. And that 25% number only starts counting once you're at a salary cap of below $100,000. So if you're above $100,000 and you reduce someone's salary, you know, if they're making $125,000 and you reduce them down to $100,000, you're probably not going to, that's not going to count against you for forgiveness because on the front end, it didn't count against you when you were applying for the loan because you could only count payroll for folks whose salaries, you know, for $100,000 or less. So if your salary is above $100,000, that amount above it doesn't count for payroll calculations on either the front end for the Mm -hmm. loan amount or on the back end for forgiveness. Allison, if I have, let's just say I cut everyone's salary in half to try and avoid laying off people, and then I receive a payroll protection loan, can I, and if, and let's just say I've cut their salaries in half for two months and I receive the loan, can I say, hey, I got this loan, so I'm going to give everyone a one-time bonus equal to the amount by which I had to reduce your salary the last two months. Can I do that, and is that a forgivable item under this program? That's a fantastic question. In theory, what the program contemplates is that you would make up that difference mm-hmm. as part of kind of the salary recoupment, not necessarily yes. a one-time bonus. Yes. But candidly, there isn't any guidance around that. Okay. And so, you know, I think that we've been advising clients mm-hmm. who seek to give a bonus, look, if it's something you would do in the ordinary course, call it danger pay. Yeah. You can probably do that here if you have some precedent for it. Okay. But in the absence of guidance and in the absence of precedent, I think you want to be careful. And the other part of the forgiveness issue that I wanted to address is the way it works is after eight weeks, you make an application to your bank. Your bank has 60 days to review that request in conjunction with the Small Business Administration and yay or nay your request for forgiveness. So my guess is a decision like that would probably be looked at by your bank and or the SBA, then it's hard to say how they would view the payment of a one-time bonus in Mm -hmm. lieu of recouping that decline by 25% in pay, if that makes sense. Okay. And am I right that if I've received a loan, because the intent was that I use these funds right away to keep people on payroll, if I've received a loan, the deadline, if you will, by which I have to apply those funds towards payroll isn't that June 30 of this year? Yeah. So that's right. And it's not it's not clear, candidly. And we're waiting okay. for more guidance around this if you have to actually use the entire proceeds of the loan by that period of time to be eligible for forgiveness. Okay. That issue, as I understand it, is, is in Congress and is being discussed because obviously okay. there are a lot of businesses that may say, look, I need this loan. Yes. I don't know if I can spend it all in the <laughs> first eight weeks. But that doesn't mean I'm not eligible for it. It doesn't mean I don't have a good faith basis for taking it. And it doesn't mean that I shouldn't get the benefit of it being forgiven. Right. So that issue is being spoken about and reviewed and addressed, as I understand it, at the agency level and also in Congress as we speak. And hopefully we'll be getting some guidance around that really soon. Mm -hmm. Because I think that that's kind of the question that's burning for everybody here. There's nothing magical, I think, about June 30 for the out-of-home business. You know, I just heard Jeremy Mail say yesterday he thinks his plant is going to be severely depressed into July before it turns around. So we could see people having shortfalls, needing help with this funds, you know, into June and even into July. Ken, the IRS has been making noise that expenses paid with Paycheck Protection Program funds are not deductible. What's the latest on that issue? And is Congress going to clarify that? 
Dave, I think that's a pretty good bet, and I'll cite four reasons why, just for starters, to sort of connect the dots and what's been discussed so far. The mission, the aim of this program is to keep workers on the job. So with that in mind, here are the four reasons why I think it's a good bet that the deductibility question gets clarified. First of all, we understand that the drafters of the Paycheck Protection Program didn't imagine that business expenses paid with PPP loans wouldn't be deductible. Secondly, the tax leaders in Congress, and I mean from both parties and both houses, that would include Senator Grassley on the Republican side, who's close to the administration, have protested the IRS guidance about non-deductibility. The third point, the whole purpose of the stimulus legislation, as we've outlined here, enacted by Congress and signed by President Trump, is to provide money to small business and as much money as possible to keep workers on the job not to reduce the amount of money they receive from the federal government. And then lastly, outside of Congress, outside of the elected officials and the politicians, there is a big push, Dave, in the business community to clarify that expenses should be written off. OAAA and many, many other business groups are calling on Congress to fix this problem. So to add this up into a conclusion, I would say, therefore, we think it's a better than 50-50 shot that either Congress clarifies that business expenses paid PPP funds are deductible or IRS reverses course to allow deductibility. If you develop out-of-home advertising sites, you need Billboard Insider's Guide to Leases, Easements, and Real Estate. Out-of-home attorney Jennifer Sloan says, I wish I had that book when I started. It would have saved me a lot of headaches. Yesco Outdoors' Pat O'Donnell calls it a must-read for anybody doing development. You can buy your copy of Billboard Insider's Guide to Leases, Easements, and Real Estate at BillboardInsider.com. Allison, the program has not been without controversy. What's been some of the controversy and why have companies returned some of the loans that they have received? That's a great question. So there's been some controversy, as folks probably read in various newspapers, around whether the businesses that took the loans were actually who the loans were intended for. In other words, it it wasn't so much that the businesses that took the loans didn't legally have the right to take the loans. It was more a question of whether they were actually intended recipients of those loans. And, you know, some of the controversy and, and conversation in the media focused on whether publicly traded companies should take the loans, given that they potentially have access to capital markets. Some of the controversy focused on whether well, seemingly well healed private businesses should take the loans, given that they have access to a well-off investors. That spurred a response from the Department of Treasury, basically saying, be careful if you take this money, we're going to be looking at you, scrutinizing it. And if you take more than $2 million, we're going to definitely audit your application and and what you've done. There was some guidance that came out in the form of frequently asked question number 31 that talked a bit about that and, and candidly scared some people because it, it, it made it sound as if the good faith certification was something that was going to be scrutinized pretty aggressively by the SBA on the back end. Mm-hmm. And then yesterday, the SBA and Treasury introduced frequently asked question 46, which clears up some of that. But mm. yes, yeah, some, so some companies gave it back in part because they felt 
that that was what they needed to do in part to kind of minimize reputational risk. Mm -hmm. And Dave, if I could add a bit of perspective here from the out-of-home side, I've talked to a lot of owners and operators and, and employees on this matter. And one comment from the West comes to mind. This is a common-sized company in your in your readership and on the on the audience today. This owner applied for and got PPP money and said, and I'm almost quoting here verbatim, yes, this program has been controversial, comma, for good reason. But let's keep in mind that it was rolled out quickly and it's massive. So it's billions of dollars in a, in a fresh start program moving to people like out-of-home companies and other, uh, other small businesses. This out-of-home owner concludes by saying, but for this money, there would have been jobs lost and businesses go under that week. And he, he sent that email to me in the middle of April. Yes, controversy. Yes, probably some of that controversy is well-deserved. But also, yes, these funds have been quickly disseminated through a fresh start program and have made a difference. I will tell you, as a small out-of-home guy who has seen revenue drop 50% when you know you, you get called by a jeweler that says, I'm closed, I can't pay you. What can you say? The program's been terrific in allowing me to keep my employees on payroll. There have been yeah. some high-profile cases in the news about people being accused of paycheck protection program fraud. Allison, what do you see as the outlook for enforcement against criminal fraud in this program? So that's a great question. The criminal fraud cases, and I know of a couple, one out of Rhode Island, one out of Texas, and they really focused around the following. Instances where borrowers were appear to be engaged in falsifying documents designed to make them eligible for the loan when those borrowers would not have otherwise been eligible for the loan either creating a company from whole cloth that didn't previously exist or falsifying or manufacturing payroll documents. I mean, that's criminal fraud, assuming those allegations are accurate. And, and that's the kind of, you know, criminal prosecutions I think you're going to see. You know, whenever you have a situation where there's a lot of money being given out and there isn't a ton of review done on the front end or underwriting assessment done on the front end, you're going to have instances where those things happen. But I don't think you're going to have a lot of those instances. And I certainly don't think that if somebody executes a loan document, makes a good faith certification that they need the money, can show that they need the money because of revenue decline or predicted revenue decline, that that is going to rise to the level of criminal fraud. I mean, criminal fraud is a pretty high hurdle proven court. And as I said, the examples that, that have become public this week and last week involve instances where companies were created at a whole cloth and or substantial documents were falsified and fabricated to, to make them eligible for the loan and to also receive any money at all. You know, those are the kinds of criminal cases we've seen so far. There may be more nuanced versions of that that come along, you know, that take a little more time to develop as a, as a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you're going to see instances where there's criminal fraud because someone filled out the application and believed in good faith that they needed the loan because they were trying to help you know, save payroll for their company. That, that is not likely to be criminal fraud. And I, and I stress that because there's been a lot of conversation over the last few weeks that candidly has scared some people into returning money that maybe they shouldn't have had to return because of that fear and that concern. Will my business be audited after the fact? Who's going to be audited? So the SBA has said that it intends to audit 
any recipient, any borrower that receives more than $2 million. The contours of that audit, the scope of that audit, how substantial that audit will be, those things are not yet known. You know, it could be that the audit is simply a review of your documentation to make sure it's accurate, it's complete, that you are, in fact, eligible for the loan. The review could be more significant. It could look at, you know, your other sources of liquidity for purposes of your good faith certification. I don't think that that's going to be the audit that everyone encounters, but I think there will be some businesses that get audited more comprehensively to see if the the money that they've taken, you know, if they really need that money from the perspective of the SBA. You know, the SBA said yesterday that even if we audit you, and we find that we don't agree that you have a good faith basis to take this money. You simply repay the money, repay the loan, and we're not going to refer you to, you know, we're not going to refer you for an enforcement action. So, so even if there was an audit and even if someone found that you didn't have a good faith basis to take the money, the worst case scenario would seem to be that you'd be asked to repay the loan. You know, that seems to be where this is going. And I qualify that because, of course, we don't have a full appreciation or understanding yet of all of it because we haven't seen formal guidance on how the audits are going to be conducted or what the scope of the audit function is going to look like. So if I'm hearing you right, if I take in a loan less than $2 million, I probably won't be audited. But regardless, I ought to keep good, a good set of records, A, building my case as to why I took the loan in the first place, if it's uncertainty, reduced pipeline, reduced revenue, and secondly, recording my use of proceeds, being able to record that so I can show I use the proceeds for payroll and other permitted uses or forgivable uses. Is that what I'm hearing? That is exactly what you're hearing. And along that line of how you use payroll, we're, we're recommending that you know companies keep very careful records of exactly that. You know, mm-hmm. how did we use the loan pro- how do we use the loan proceeds? We used it to make payroll. This is how we did that. Either mm-hmm. not, you know, either creating a separate account, operating account for those loan proceeds, or being pretty meticulous about not commingling that money with your operating account money, so that at the end of the eight weeks, you can go to your bank and say, "Here's my record of what I did, what yeah. I received, and how I spent this money." Okay, Allison, you've talked about a lot of additional guidance. This program's been sort of changing on the fly. What's the latest guidance that's come out? concerning the program? So the guidance I was discussing a few minutes ago about Mm -hmm. last evening, frequently asked question number 46 came out. I should say it was actually yesterday (laughs) afternoon that came out or yesterday morning on the East Coast. And basically what that says is, look, if you take out a loan and the loan amount is for $2 million or less, less than $2 million, we, the SBA, are going to presume that you have a good faith basis for taking that loan. If the loan amount is for more than $2 million, we're going to audit you, and we're going to check and make sure you have a good faith basis for taking out that loan. And if we find that you do not, then we will simply ask that you repay that loan. It won't be eligible for forgiveness. And if you repay that loan, we won't refer you for any further enforcement action. Okay. Ken, are there any other types of COVID assistance which Congress is looking at which could impact out-of-home companies? Dave, thanks. In addition to the PPP help, in addition to the individual checks that have arrived to, to many out-of-home workers, Congress is looking at allowing businesses to expense updates to workplaces and providing hmm. protective equipment when, when workers return. Transit, which has been hard hit by this crisis, is seeking additional help since ridership has been uh, severely depressed. And OAAA is working with allies and other media to boost demand for advertising and out-of-home advertising in particular. OAAA and other media, I mentioned the broadcasters, 
are making the point to the White House and to Congress that ad spending by government is a form of stimulus. And we're making the point to Congress and the White House that, of course, out of home is an effective communicator for government. Out of home is a longtime customer to government, particularly the military. And on a related matter, Dave, we're taking a close look at the ad spend by the U.S. Census. The current advertising plan for the census for the 2020 census was created in and signed off in 2016. So that may be a good salute to long-term planning, but everyone would agree that the circumstances have changed in regard to getting an accurate census in 2020. Hmm. So our goal there is to make sure that out-of-home gets all that everybody supports, which is an accurate census. So those are some of the things we're looking at to make sure that the decision makers know of the power of our medium and when there is stimulus money spent for messaging, that we're in the mix and are the beneficiary of that. Ken, where should out-of-home companies go if they want more information on the Paycheck Protection Program? Go right to our webpage, OAAA.org, and on the, on the homepage, you see a resources hot button there that takes you right to a page that would include recorded webinars like the one we mentioned that Allison and I were on a few weeks ago, and a walkthrough of a typical application for small business help. That shows the good and bad, but I, I think it's a great reflection of how this program works. And then, of course, links to the SBA of how to apply. As Allison says, you can still apply for that second pot of money from the paycheck protection. So there's a thorough menu of resources right from the front page, easy to get to and easy to use. Terrific. We will also link to a great series of articles and analysis over at Venable.com, where Venable has written about the program. That's all for this week. Allison and Ken, thanks for appearing. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. This podcast was edited by Lucas Jones and sponsored by Billboard Insider's Guide to Leases, Easements, and Real Estate. You can listen to episodes of the Billboard Insider podcast by visiting billboardinsider.com or by subscribing to the Billboard Insider podcast on iTunes or any of the usual podcast outlets. Our email is billboardinsider at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back in a couple weeks.